Good morning. It is good to see you today. Those of you here, those in uh, Skagit, glad you're with us. Pastor Brian and the team down there from Trinity Church of God in, in Boca Raton. Those watching online, streaming, live stream right now, it's good to have you with us as well. As we enter into this second week of our summer series, we're going to spend 14 weeks uh, looking at the book of Romans. Some of you will remember, uh, some of you are not old enough to remember this, but some of you will remember that annoying uncle or aunt or friend of the family who would come home from vacation and bring their slide projector over. And uh, I'm going to be that annoying uncle right now. Um, it won't last that long. We don't have a slide projector. But um, I mentioned this trip that we took to Rome five years ago. And I just want to give you, it's, this is kind of a, a public service uh, help for you. Um, my travel tips for when you go to Rome, if you go to Rome, there's some famous sites, there's some must-see sites, and a little bit of a slideshow just so you know what I'm talking about. You've got to see these things. One is the Trevi Fountain. It's a very famous fountain. There was a movie about it uh, made about, I don't know, 500 years ago or so. But part of that is you have to throw a coin in and the, the the correct way is your right hand, the coin goes over your left shoulder into the fountain. That will guarantee that you'll be able to come back and visit again. It's a, a spectacular sight. And a lot of people do this. A lot of people do this. In fact, last year, 2016, the amount of coins they pulled out of Trevi Fountain were equivalent to U.S. funds, $1.5 million. So we're putting a fountain in out here. And uh, uh, so... You also have to go to the Colosseum. You cannot go to Rome without seeing the Colosseum. It's like the trademark. I mean, that is the, the, the spot there. Amazing thing about the Colosseum, it was constructed in nine years, which is phenomenal in our day and age. Of course, when you have 80,000 slaves that you can work 24 hours a day. But it was constructed in nine years, and it had a retractable roof. Most people didn't know that. It had a retractable roof. Truly, if it was raining, they could pull across this canvas tarp over the whole thing. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives here in the gladiator games and uh, a lot of reenactments of, of epic war scenes happened there. It was an amazing, amazing deal. Not only that, but you need to go to the Forum. The Forum is an amazing thing because you can get a little glimpse of the Imperial Roman life, and it's free. You can just walk through there any time of the day or night, whatever, and just to be able to see the Forum. The Pantheon is one that you can't miss either. The Pan, pan means all. It was originally a, uh, a pagan temple constructed to honor all the gods, and it was constructed in 125 A.D., so it's almost 1,900 years old. It's amazing that it's still standing, and for the last 1,900 years, the dome, which you see here, the dome is the largest unreinforced, unsupported concrete dome in the world and has been for 1,900 years. The only natural light, in, the only light in the, in the big dome is this hole in the ceiling, and it's really cool. A little side note, on April 21st at noon, the light hits such a place where it hits this grate and sends this light out into the corridor. Needless in, uh, facts that, that are, you know, senseless facts that you can use for whatever, but it's an amazing thing. Got to see that. And then there's uh, Piazza Navona. You got to go to Piazza Navona. Piazza Navona was originally a, an athletic arena, and then it was some chariot racing. It's an elliptical-shaped deal. It has since become a square, three beautiful fountains. It attracts musicians and uh, artists, and there's little boutiques and coffee shops and gelato and, and restaurants. It's fabulous. So from there, you have to go to the Spanish Steps, very familiar uh, romantic spot, the Spanish Steps, 135 steps. And over the years, it has always attracted poets and artists and artists would go there and paint, and, and very often in history, it would attract beautiful women who would go there to try and be picked up by an artist as a model, which in fact attracted ugly men. So it's been a very romantic spot for a lot of years. Another senseless, needless fact is in 2007, someone drove a Toyota Celica down these steps. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but two steps were chipped. All right, so not only that, but you have to go to the Vatican. You cannot go to Rome without going to the Vatican City with the Swiss army guards that are there, the neutral na uh, nation of Swiss, Switzerland guarding that. And then St. Peter's Basilica, 
which took 120 years to construct. Contrast that with the nine years for the, uh, for the Colosseum. 120 years, St. Peter's Basilica. I cannot tell you how huge this is. One of the world's largest churches inside is, is spectacular. You could, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating, you could fly a small plane inside of St. Peter's Basilica. And there is these beautiful works of art and the masterpiece from Michelangelo, La Pieta, which is a famous work of art and it's marble and on and on, and the Sistine Chapel, and the, and the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which I don't have a picture of, because they asked us not to take pictures, and I am always a rule follower, so I didn't take it. But there's so much to see in this historic city. Now, the reason I tell you that is, while these are some must-see famous sites, there is so much more to see. And while we were there for just a few days, there was so much that we weren't even able to see. And one morning I was out for a run, and I was just kind of running, and I kind of had my inner homing pigeon to bring me back to the hotel. And I came through this park, and there were these arches and ancient ruins and all this stuff that we weren't even going to see. And I kept thinking, I wish we could find out about this, and what's the history behind this, and these questions about this, and explore this. And we weren't even going to be able to see it. Now, the reason I tell you all of that is that that, that historic city of Rome and all the sites to see is really kind of a, an illustration of what we're doing this summer as we look into the book of Romans. Because there are some famous must-see passages. There, there are some passages that are well-known that you have to hit when you go through the book of Romans. Things like, like one of them we'll hit today, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a must-see verse in Romans. Or while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or the bad news, good news verse of the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or maybe you can identify with Paul in, in Romans 7 where he say, states this, this, this frustration in his life where he says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I hate, I end up doing. And how many of us can identify with that? But to have him come around in chapter 8 and say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or that verse that so many of us hold us on, have held on to in times of difficulty. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Or the fact that he says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor principalities, and on and on and on. That if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. See, these are the must-see sights. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or, or how about that, that passage out of Romans chapter 12? How we are to give our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we'll hit these passages. But just like on my run in Rome, as I've been studying, as I've been reading through, there's so many areas where I think, oh, I wish we could go into that. I wish we could answer those questions. I wish we could explore that. That's why I want to encourage you on your own to continue to dig in, to read, to research, to learn, to chew with these, these deep theological, rich, beautiful truths in the book of Romans, because there's absolutely no way we can do anything but hit the highlights in 14 weeks. Now, last week we started this, and I gave you a lot of history and a lot of backdrop. Some of you loved that. Some of you endured it. Not nearly as much history today. But as I said that, I, I mentioned we really kind of honed in on a couple of verses. And I mentioned how one of these verses absolutely revolutionized the life of a young monk and uh, priest named Martin Luther and actually changed the whole trajectory of Christianity 500 years ago. And from that started the Protestant Reformation and the Lutheran Church. And then 200 years after that, Luther's writings about Romans brought about this transformation in the heart of, of, of John Wesley and sparked this revival throughout England and started the, the Methodist Church and the Wesleyan movement. 
And some of you say, well, that's great for the Lutherans and the Methodists, but what about us? Okay, so if you're from a Reformed background or Presbyterian background, John Calvin is your man. John Calvin said this, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, the book of Romans, this letter, he has an entrance opened to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. You see that our fathers throughout Christian history have said, this book is so important. It is so... Did it just get dark in here? What happened? It's a sign. This book is... I, I'm just going to keep going. You just stay there in the dark. This book, it, this book enlightens you. Wow. It's an incredible book. And so we're just going to continue to dig into this book. So, so last weekend, um, we were looking really at, at two primary verses. And in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes this thing. He says, For, um, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What can you also you know, use instead of gospel here? Good news. All right. So I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now this little line, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, is a, is a theme and a line that you will see repeated. And it's an important one, so don't skip over it too quickly. And it's not just a chronological thing, first and then, and it's not just a priority thing, but in the mind of the Jewish people, in the Israelites, in the Jewish mind, this was seen really as, as a superiority thing. Here was the mentality. Jewish people, the Israelites, were good. The Gentiles, they were, they were, you know, throwaway stuff. Jews better, Gentiles worser. That was kind of this mentality, and there was a reason because of that, why they even came to that conclusion. Because the Jewish people had been hand-selected by God. They had been given the blessing of God. They had entered into a covenant with God. They showed the sign of that covenant. They had circumcision, which was really an important thing, because it marked that they were in a covenant, a commitment and a connection, a covenant with God that other nations were not. They had the law, which meant they had a relationship. God gave them the law, and they would be blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. And so there was this mentality that they were better and the others were worse. All right, file that away because we'll come back to that. I told you there'd be a quiz this week. It's a simple quiz. There are four words. I gave you the answer. We posted them on social media. Some of you wrote them down. The quiz, four words. What are the four words? Not bad. From God, by faith. From God, by faith. That there's this right standing, and this was, this was the, the good news. There's a right standing that is from God, and it is by faith. And we find this in verse 17. And this is the verse that, that changed the course of, of Christian history uh, with Martin Luther's life. For in the gospel, in the good news, a righteousness, a right standing from God is revealed. Hold on to that one, too, because we'll come back to that. A right standing that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, and then he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And for the rest of this letter, Paul explains this, he illustrates this, he talks about the ripple effects of this truth. The rest of the letter is really, this is like the central verse in the whole letter. It's good news that there's a right standing that is from God and is received by faith. Who doesn't like good news? That's why the gospel is so wonderful. That's why he was so eager to preach. I want you to know this good news. I went out to dinner with, uh, my wife and I went out to dinner with some friends. This gentleman that, uh, he's been my friend for many, many years. He is not a Christian. He is on a spiritual journey, however, and it's amazing the progress. Slow, but the sure progress that he's made over the years. 
And as we were talking at dinner that night, he brought up some of his spiritual journey. He brought up some of his discoveries and, and where he is in this. And he came to this point telling about another friend who had been speaking into his life and talking about some things about sin and judgment and those kind of things. And he came to this conclusion. He says, I like the whole idea about God being loving and forgiving and helpful. But this whole thing about sin and condemnation and judgment and hell and wrath, I don't like that part as much. Well, who does? I like, that's like the bad news part. In fact, most of us kind of like to just like, let's not talk about that. Let's, let's put that away. When Paul lays out this good news as, after he puts this out and just says, this is what the whole letter is going to be about, he immediately goes into this section that we're going to look at today where it's just about bad news. He paints this bad news, this bad news scene, and the bad news is our sin and God's wrath. And we cannot skip over this, and I'll tell you why. Without a proper understanding of God's wrath towards sin, without a belief system about God's wrath towards sin, the essence of the gospel loses everything. The glory of the cross is gone. The good news is no longer good news. Without the sin and the wrath of God towards sin, the good news is just a good option. It's a nice alternative. It's a fine choice, but it's not good news. So after he lays out this truth about there being, there being a right standing that is from God by faith, right on the heels of that, he goes into this whole section that kind of paints this bad news picture. Verse 18, he says this, the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, we just saw something else that was being revealed, this gospel. Now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Court is in session. God is the judge. Anyone who breaks the law is guilty and on trial. So he, he opens up this court, and he says, the wrath of God is against these things. And throughout, and this, we're, we're going to fly through a bunch of this, okay? So throughout the rest of chapter 1, he talks about this godlessness, this wickedness, this suppression of truth. And so often, especially in conservative Christian churches, we focus on one portion of, of Romans chapter 1, where he talks about homosexuality. But in this section, he lists off 24 different sins that are wickedness, that are this suppression of truth, that are this godlessness. And I want to tell you, you go through those 24, not a one of us comes out of that chapter unscathed. And if you do, it's because you're a liar. It affects all of us. And he says, because of this sin in our lives, this wickedness, this, this unrighteousness, this, this suppressing of the truth, the wrath of God comes. Now, in the Jewish mind, he's talking about the Gentiles because they live this self-indulgent life, this hedonistic lifestyle, especially in Rome. And so as he's saying this, the Jewish mind is saying, that's right, give them the wrath of God, give them the punishment, give them all this stuff. And he just goes through, and, and you can just hear the Jewish audience saying, go get them, Paul, we love this, that's why we're better and they're worse, because we're Jewish people and they're Gentiles, and we have the law, and they, don't, they suppress the truth, and we have circumcision, and they're uncircumcised, all this stuff. Chapter 2, verse 8. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Jewish audience, go get them, Paul. We love this. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. That's right. And then he throws this one in. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second, Paul. What do you mean first for the Jew? We're better, they're worse. And now he comes back to this. He says, we're talking not just about them. 
talking about us. Paul was Jewish, Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents were Jewish, Israel, uh, Israelites, a Hebrew people. And he says, and the wrath of God is against those who sin first. Why, why us first? First, because you're chosen, because there's a higher responsibility, because you've been given the law. There's a, a great privilege, but a responsibility that comes with it. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile, to which they weren't really excited about, about that whole idea. And I think what Paul is saying to them is, listen, the Gentiles may be self-indulgent, but as Jewish people, we're self-righteous. The Gentiles, they may, have, they may have neglected the law or not even heard the law, but we have taken such confidence and pride in ourselves because of the law. And what Paul does at the end of, of chapter 1 in Romans and chapter 2 is he basically illustrates on a, on a global scale the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Some of you are familiar with the prodigal son. Here's this loving, good, good father who loves his sons. He's got two sons. One of the sons rebels, embarrasses the father, spends his life in this, this uh, awful moral reprobate kind of a life, spending money on prostitutes and partying and drunkenness and all kinds of, you know, materialism. And, and he's this rebellious son. And there's this older brother who's obedient to the father, compliant to everything that the father asks. And yet the, the point of the story is that both sons, both sons are lost. Both sons are separated from the father. One because of his self-indulgence, the other because of his self-confidence and self-righteousness. Both of them have been alienated from the father, and both of them need to be reconciled, and both of them need salvation. And Paul just lays that out. Yes, the Gentiles with their lifestyle and, the, and this lascivious, the, the, okay, I can't remember that word, lascivious, the really bad stuff they do. And as Jewish people with our self-righteousness, we both are alienated from the Father. And so then he goes on and he talks about the law and he talks about all of this. Here's the truth about human nature. This isn't even a, a, a church thing. This is just true about human nature. We as humans have a tendency to downplay our bad side and elevate our good side. We downplay the things in our, in our life that we're embarrassed or ashamed of or shouldn't have done, and we elevate and look at all these things. It's just kind of a human nature. And Paul paints this picture, and he comes to this conclusion, we, we see this, that we are worse than we thought. We're, we're worse than we thought. We thought we were doing okay. The Jewish people thought they were even great because they followed the law, because they had circumcision, because they were a part of the covenant. He says, you're worse off than you really even thought. So he hits this thing with the law, and, and, and it will be a, a, a theme that he comes back to for the next four or five chapters quite a bit. So then he gets to chapter 3, and he comes to this. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Like, are we better and they're worse? Are we better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike. Jews and Gentiles were not alike in any other area. But he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. This idea that there's us and them, not the case. We're all under sin. This, this phrase, under sin, it's like a standing. Remember, righteousness is a right standing before God. Under sin is not a right standing before God. That it's, it's my citizenship, my passport is stamped under sin. That's where I'm from. All of us, he says. Not just the Gentiles, but even the Jewish people were all 
understand it's a lot more grim than we thought it was and then if you're following along in your bible you'll see this then he just goes off and he gives a a biblical kind of cherry picks goes through the old testament pulls a lot of verses out of psalms one out of ecclesiastes one out of isaiah and he just puts together this list to back up what he's saying i won't read you the whole thing but look at this if you've ever been in a counseling situation or if you've ever been in any kind of a reconciliation you know you've been instructed don't use blanket statements don't use never always you know those kind of things paul didn't get that lesson look what he says as it is written and now he just starts pulling scripture you know it's kind of like can't argue with scripture there is no one blanket statement no one no one righteous and not even one in case you thought you were the outlier he just reiterates it there's no one not not even one there is no one blanket statement who understands no one who seeks god all all have turned away they have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one how many of you ever say this is my life verse this isn't real encouraging and this is only halfway through he keeps going and he's just saying see, see here's the deal last weekend some of you were a little offended that i use the word suck in church some of you were not offended by the, the usage of the word what you're really offended by was that i said you suck that's what offended you Paul uses the Bible, and he basically says, spiritually speaking, you suck. See, this is what Paul's saying. He says that's what the Bible says, that it's worse off than you thought, and not one of us, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or, or if you're Gentile, we all, all of us have this. We're all under sin. Now, Paul quotes uh, out of Isaiah, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Paul knew the Old Testament. And probably had most of it memorized. And I can imagine in his mind, he's thinking about that verse out of Isaiah that says, all of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And this isn't just in need of a shower. In the Jewish mindset, unclean was this, this separation from God. You were cursed. You were, you were, um, you were uh, just this, this uh, an, an abomination. It was because of your life. There was this unclean nature. Something had to happen. And he says, we've all become unclean. We're not just talking about people with leprosy or people who are involved with these horrible things. All of us have become unclean. And all of our righteous acts, the things we're so excited about, things we're so proud of, he said, are like filthy rags. And I'm not going to go into this because every time I do, everyone gets upset. If you can think of right now the grossest, most crass, crude, disgusting, possible use of the word rag, that's what he's talking about. Our righteous deeds are that. And we've all shriveled up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. He says, do you understand? This is really, really bad news. Because in and of ourselves, in and of our own righteousness, even if we're circumcised, even if we have the law, even if we try really hard, everything we do is not enough. And so in chapter 3, verse 20, he says this. Therefore, so he's laid this all out for about a chapter and a half. Therefore, no one, no one, no one will be declared righteous. No one will be, be given a right standing in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Now listen, you might be really good. You might be really disciplined. 
and you might be seen as righteous by your coworkers, by your neighbors, by your friends. They might say, well, yeah, you know, he or she, they live an upstanding, righteous life. You ought to see the things that they do and, and the things they don't do. And, and, you know, by your pastor or by your small group or by your spouse, probably not. But by everyone else, they could all say, yeah, he or she, they're righteous. But when you're in God's sight, it says, no, no, no. If you think that God looks down and says, oh, look at all the way that they have kept my law, he says, you're not going to be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. That the law shows us how far we fall short. A friend of mine, Dave Freeman, owns a, a, actually a pretty big company up in Blaine. He was telling me that, that uh, years ago, he received a letter from the IRS saying, hey, we're going we're, we're gonna to audit your company, which was a little unsettling, kind of rattled him a little bit. So he called the contact number at the bottom and said, hey, got this letter, and they said, yeah, we're going to be auditing your company. And he said, is there something that I can do, kind of go back through, make sure I didn't miss anything or, you know, get some receipts? He said, we'll get all that for you. He said, well, is there something I can do to prepare just to make sure, because, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, whatever. And the IRS agent said to him, listen, we will find something wrong. And he said, it sounds like you've got this attitude that I'm guilty until proven innocent. And the agent said, no, you are guilty. We'll just find it. He said, because the tax laws are in a book six inches thick, you can't read them all. There's hundreds of thousands of them, and they change every year. There's no way for you to even know all the tax laws. There's no way that you can comply. It's impossible for you to keep them all. You are already guilty. The law shows that. We just got to find out where you're guilty. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, the law of God, you're, you'll never be able to keep it perfectly. You are guilty because you've broken it at some point. And the law points that out. See, for, for the Jew and for the Gentile, the law shows our inadequacy and our inability. That if it's just like, I'm just going to keep the law, I'm just going to follow the rules, we're inadequate and we're unable to even do that. This, listen, this is why the gospel is offensive to some people. This is why this sermon is offensive to some of you. Because inside you recoil saying, I'm not that bad. And Paul says, yes, you are. And we say, well, but I'm not that helpless. And, and, and the law says, yes, you are. But you can't do this on your own. You're not good enough. Now, aren't you glad you came today? This is such an encouraging sermon. Paul just lays this out, and I would encourage you to just kind of dig through it uh, on your own. Here's the bad news. That our condition is worse than we thought. But the good news is that the gospel is more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. And it's on the backdrop of that black bad news that the brilliance of the diamond of the gospel shines even brighter. And with that, you ready for some good news? All right. So if you have your Bible, we're going to pick up where we, just, where we just left off there at Romans chapter 3. And in verse 21, he's just painted this, this picture of how bleak it is. And then these two words, but now... Those are beautiful words when he's just gone for a chapter and a half saying, it's worthless, you know, none of you are doing right with the sin, the law, all this stuff, the wrath of God. But, there's no more beautiful and glorious word than but. This contrast of this is the way it is, however. 
but now. And you'll begin to see how he just continues to spend more time on that verse that we saw in chapter 1, verse 17. But now, he says, a right standing from God, there it is again, now this is good news, apart from law, has been made known. It's been revealed. To which the law and the prophets testify. Now on this one, he says, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, it all points to this, this right standing from God. And we're going to see that in just a couple minutes here as we get in there. And we'll see it illustrated next week in chapter 4 when he uses Abraham as the example for this. How all the Old Testament points to this. The Old Testament, the laws and the prophets pointed to this new righteousness. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. It's fulfilled in him, and then we get to live in this new righteousness. So he says that and goes on. And this is where he just repeats chapter 1, verse 17. This righteousness, this right standing from God, there it is again, comes by or through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all. Remember he said now, all of us are in need of salvation, whether we think we're better or we think we're worse, whether we're Jewish or whether we're Gentile, whether we're male or female, it doesn't matter, young or old, we're all in need of it. And now he says that we are we all have this righteousness for those who believe. Like there's no difference. He says there's no difference between them. Next verse. There's no difference. In their mind, there had always been a difference. What about the law? What about the blessing? What about the covenant? What about circumcision? What about all of that? He says there's no difference. And then here's one of those must-see famous verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, blanket statement. Now this is uh, Romans uh, 3.23. Many of us memorized this, the Romans road to salvation. We memorized it as kids. We memorized it as adults. What's amazing to me, while it gets all this time, and it's a, it's a, it's a very true verse, is that Romans 3.24 is an absolutely spectacular verse, and it doesn't get any airtime. So I want us to slow down, because we fast-forwarded through a couple chapters already. I want us to slow down and take a look at verse 24 at least four words out of that. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, you can insert all, because it's in the same thing, all have sinned, and, and all are justified. Justified is this legal term. Justified means those who are guilty are now somehow not guilty. They're declared not guilty. Was it something that they did, or their case was proven right, or something happened, but they were guilty, but now they're not guilty. It's, it's a very, it's a legal term. And he says, all are justified. All are declared not guilty freely. And this word freely has two different meanings. Freely, like without cost, and freely without cause. We, we understand the freely without cost. This is free to you. And you know, we say, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and there's not here either. Someone paid the price. But it's free to you without cost. This justification, this not guilty, this right standing before God— is offered to you not because of something you've done. Not because of how you uh, observed the law or, or obeyed the law. It's not because of something you promised to do that, you know, you'll never do that again and in the future. It's not yours because you paid a certain amount. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. It's not yours because it's free, but you'll have to listen to a 90-minute presentation and then figure something out at the end of that. It's just free without cost. But the word freely here also means without cause. Like it's unmerited. Like it's even, in the truest sense of this word, unreasonable. There's no reason, nothing 
that would cause this to happen. It's without cause. And you have been declared not guilty, a right standing with God, without cost to you and without any reason for it, except that it is by His grace. You know, it's, it's sad that the beauty of this word is diminished with our familiarity of it. That many of us grow up singing amazing grace, talking about grace, hearing about grace, and we get to the point where we're like, yeah, this grace, it's amazing. It's mind-boggling. You know, it's not justice. We'll talk about that in a minute. Justice is when I get what I deserve. That's justice. Mercy is when I don't get what I deserve. You see this illustrated on the road all the time. Someone's zipping through traffic and hazardous and they get up, and then you come up over the, the, the hill and you realize they got pulled over and you're going, yes, justice is served. They get what they deserve, stick it to them, throw the book, you know, give them the big ticket. And then when you're late for the recital and you get pulled over, you're begging for mercy. See, justice, I want them to have justice. I want to receive mercy. Justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I could never deserve. It's so far above and beyond. And this not guilty, right standing before God, without cause, without cost, is given, even though I don't deserve it, through the redemption. There is a price that was paid, but not by you and not by me. The redemption that came by Christ Jesus. About three or four years ago, I did a series of sermons called Big Words, and um, I want to really quickly revisit a few of those big words because they all fit in here. In fact, I used some of these verses when we were doing that series. One of the big words that we talked about was propitiation. It's a word that we don't use a lot, but propitiation means to satisfy, all right, it's, or, or even appease. The idea of propitiation, biblically, is that God's wrath is satisfied and turned away. That the justice of our holy, righteous God that our sin demands some kind of a consequence, that that has been satisfied. Not only is there propitiation, there's expiation. Expiation means to remove, like X, like past. And the expiation is that we remove, our, our, our sin is removed, and our guilt is removed. They're closely related, but they are different. Expiation is a part of propitiation. And they lead to atonement, and atonement is to restore, it's to repair this relationship. You know, it's that at-one-ment, that we are one again. That our sin, our rebellion, our guilt, our shame had caused this, this fissure in a relationship, this chasm in a relationship that we couldn't cross, this separation from us and God. But because somehow there was this expiation, this removal of our sin and guilt, there was the, the wrath of God was turned away, and now we are at one with Him again. There's that atonement. So these are, these are big words, but they're found, these truths are found in these verses. And remember he said, this, this righteousness that's from God, all the Old Testament and the laws testified to it. And now he, he kind of goes into that a little bit more. Next verse, he says, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Some of your translations, depending on which one you have, may say as a propitiation. It might even say as an expiation. But Jesus was presented as a sacrifice of atonement. To understand this, 
you have to go back to Leviticus chapter 16 in the Old Testament with the Day of Atonement where God said, I want to be able to provide something for my people. So on one day a year, the high priest who was serving that year would sacrifice a goat and on that one day on the day of atonement he would take the blood of that goat and he would go into the holy of holies the only time anyone was allowed in the holy of holies and back behind the veil behind the curtain in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant and the lid of the ark of the covenant between the two cherubim was a place called the mercy seat and on that day the high priest would take the blood of the goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation it happened one day a year now it says, now he was presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, and it's for us to have faith in his blood. Not the blood of a goat, not the blood of bulls, not the blood of sheep, but Jesus, the final sacrifice. Now let me say this really quick, because last night I went really long in this. I think it's very cool, but we don't have time for it. In the Ark of the Covenant, some of you will remember, there are three things. There's a golden bowl of a jar of manna, there's Aaron's rod that had budded with the almond blossoms, and there were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Just the picture of that, that there was this reminder of God's faithfulness, that he would give the manna every single day, and this picture that his mercies, like manna, his mercies are new every single day. The whole story in, in Numbers chapter 17, 16 and 17 about Aaron's rod blossoming, it's because there was some rebellion. There was sin in the camp, and the result of that sin was bringing death into the camp. And by God's grace, and what Aaron did as like the priest, what Aaron did caused the, the, the curse of that sin to be stopped. And then there was the law. This law that not only said, you're in a, right, you're in a covenant relationship with God, but this is what you are to follow. That was all in the box. And here's the law. And here's this picture of God's faithfulness and His grace and His law. And the blood of Jesus comes. And He's saying, and now this blood, this blood covers over the law. Covers over from the mercy seat of God. His blood is the final sacrifice that we don't need to sacrifice goats and bulls and rams and, and sheep anymore. Because Jesus' blood took care of that. And it's the faith in, in His blood. See, the blood of the animals, the blood of the animals covered sin, the blood of Jesus removed sin. Now, it gets even cooler. He did this. Okay, I think it gets even cooler. So did Paul. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Very important. If God is not just, he's not holy. We would not want an unjust God. He can't just wink away sin and says it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. The wrath of God. In his justice, demonstrates his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Think about this. All the sins that had been committed up until Jesus, there had been bulls, sacrificed goats, sacrificed sheep, sacrificed that covered but didn't remove. And he leaves those sins unpunished. What that means is he, he like suspends judgment. He, um, he gives them a deferred sentence. He puts them in an inactive file. He says, okay, they're guilty. They deserve to be punished, but I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to hold off on that. He, he, in his patience, he left the sins uh, committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. He says, now, now that there's something that can actually take care of their sins, now I will bring them out. Isn't that beautiful? 
That this idea that God in the Old Testament is this God filled with wrath and anger, he says, no, 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 you're seeing my mercy. You're seeing my grace. I am not judging them until there's something to take care of their sin. Look at this, this difficulty. Here's a God who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, whose justice requires that there is some wrath that must happen for sin. And here's this God who is loving, creative, and grace-filled. And, and, and what do you do with these things that seem to be kind of at, at polar opposite ends of the spectrum? Do does God remain just and wrathful at the cost and expense of love and grace? Or does he show love and grace at the expense of, of wrath and justice and holiness? Or does God in his divine goodness and amazing ability say, no, I am both? And so he says, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What a picture of our great God. He says, yes, there is wrath towards sin. But I'll pay for that. Yes, you deserve punishment. But I love you so much, I'll give you my grace. I'll put your punishment on my son, Jesus Christ. Yes, your blood should be shed for what you've done, but I'll shed my son's blood. Yes, your life should be given for that, but I'll give the life of my son. And this can be yours through faith. It's a beautiful picture of the redemption and the love and the grace of God. God has always been and always will be. God is always about redemption, not condemnation. You see that through the Old Testament. You see that through the New Testament. You see that in our lives. All of the Old Testament pointed to it. All of it's fulfilled in Jesus, and all of it is offered to you and I. So it gets down to the end. Verse 27. It says, okay, where then is boasting? I'm like, who, who's going to brag now? You know, we're better. Where's the boasting? Is it excluded? In a, if so, on what principle? On that of observing the law? No. But the, on that of faith. And this, Paul comes back to this on several other occasions. Where he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, It is by grace you are saved through faith. This is from God, not from ourselves. So that no one can. So that no one can boast. It's not our doing. Now he, he it's again in Galatians. Where he says, may I never boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, well, we can't boast about anything we've done. It's what Jesus has done, and he says, and, and we're sticking to this, for we maintain that a man is justified, is declared un, not guilty, is, is declared in a right standing with God by faith. This trust leaned into, depending on what Jesus has done, apart from observing the law. To which some are thinking, so then we can do whatever we want. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's Sinathon. Sinapalooza. Mardi Gras. You could do it that way. But the truth is, when you really understand the bad news of our condition and the beautiful good news of the gospel and what it costs our Savior, the only proper response is humility, a heart filled with gratitude, responding in worship, surrendering and submitting to the one who created us and redeemed us, to walk in step with his spirit, to be transformed in the people we were created and redeemed to be. That's the only proper response. In 1 John, we read these words, this is love. Not that we loved God, that he loved us and sent his son 
as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. To live surrendered and submitted, free in the good news of the gospel because we've been justified and to walk in this life of transformation. See, everything he's been talking about up to this point is the justification. He will get into the life process of sanctification. That will come. Remember last week I said there was that phrase, we don't even have time to go into, the obedience that comes from faith. That's that ongoing response. I've got, I'm getting into another sermon, so we'll stop there. So here's what I want us to do. As we continue to understand and embrace this truth and allow it to seep into our minds and our hearts and permeate every part of our being, to live our lives as this, this constant worship to God for what He's done, I think in response for us together as, as, a, as a congregation corporately today, that we would respond with His heart just poured out in gratitude. And we're going to sing a song here and in Skagit. This, Great are you, Lord, because everything that we are, all that we have, the riches of His grace, have nothing to do with us keeping the law. Not one of us can say we're better, they're worse. We're all worse. Only Jesus Christ is better. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing this song, and then I'll close this in prayer.